Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Thanks, Ali. Well, hey, if I've not met you before, my name's Matt. It's a pleasure to see you and to be here. Although it's always scary to stand in front of so many people who are waiting to hear what you've got to say. Luckily, you're not hearing, waiting to hear what I've got to say, you're waiting to hear what God's got to say. And um, what he has to say today, I think, is really timely for us at Grace Church. So um, I hope you're excited to get into the word Um, Let's just pray again and ask the Spirit to open our eyes to it because I feel that, and not just feel, I think it's really important that that we're relying on him when we come to look at the word. So very briefly, Father, open our eyes to the truth. Send your Spirit. By by your grace, help us to see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We desire it because he's worthy and we need him. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, let me begin by asking you a question today get this to go. How would you describe yourself? Just in a word or a phrase, how would you describe yourself? And just think about it for a second, okay? Everyone there? Probably not. I know that not everyone can think about this sort of thing on the spot. My wife, in fact, hates this sort of question, so this is for you, honey. (laughs) Um, I've actually put a little slideshow together to help us get into this, to help us visualize our self-view a little bit better. So 
Hopefully this is helpful. Maybe you see yourself as artistic, a bit like the boss, Bruce Springsteen. What a ledge. <laughs> Maybe that's you. Maybe you view yourself as creative, like Nigella Lawson. Very hard to find a picture of Nigella Lawson that is family-friendly, by the way. <laughs> but I wanted a mix of men and women, so that's why we've gone with this. She's a cook, and she's creative. Maybe you enjoy cooking, and maybe that's sort of you. You, you see yourself as quite a creative person. Maybe you're sad, but like Donkey here. Maybe your life is characterised by sadness, either because you feel sad or because you're just a bit of a saddo. That, that's me. Maybe you think you're really useful. I couldn't really think of anyone for useful, so I thought, you know, Kate, you know, she does a great job for the royal family, and generally they just want to project that we're really useful. Maybe that's you. Maybe you, maybe you think the royals are useful. I don't know. Slightly ironic picture, I suppose. Maybe you think you're above average. I don't know. Maybe you think you're a decent person. I had to ask my wife about a character for this. I'm glad you enjoyed that, Becky. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think I'm actually a really great person. I think if I was going to pick a word, I'd generally often think of myself as a pretty good guy. Um, so that's probably me. Maybe you think you're disciplined. <laughs> Who's more disciplined than The Rock? Look at him. Maybe you think you're cool. Maybe everything about you is sort of pristine, sharp. You're a bit like Thierry Henry. Um, I was going to put a picture of Colin Patterson here, but I didn't want to embarrass him. <laughs> Maybe you view yourself as a bit of a geek and you think that's a positive thing, so I thought this picture would be a corrective to you. <laughs> Do you still think it's good? Yeah. Maybe you're joyful. In my mind, this is Maxim the Kisser. <laughs> Maybe you're arrogant. I don't know if you heard about this story. This woman wrote an article in the Daily Mail. Why are we surprised? Why do women hate me for being beautiful? I don't know. Maybe it's because you're a little bit arrogant as well. But maybe when you look at yourself and you think, actually, yeah, sometimes I'm a bit cocky and arrogant. I don't know. Maybe you're that self-aware. Maybe you're really confident. This is my favourite sportsman, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I've read his um, autobiography recently. Really interesting. Guy who came from nothing is now one of the most famous footballers in the world. He's uber-confident. He recently hosted a Twitter question and answer session and someone asked him, if I can get it up, is it going to come? Um, is Zlatan human or should he be worshipped like a god? To which he said, yes, Zlatan is just a human, the same way that a great white shark is just a fish. <laughs> You've got to have a certain amount of confidence to say that about yourself, haven't you? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're judgmental. Maybe you're always looking at other people and trying to figure out how you're better than them. Maybe that's what makes you feel secure about yourself. I don't know. I thought that was a good picture to sort of crystallise that. Maybe you're self-obsessed. I don't know. Look at your Facebook activity. You know. Oh, man, I forgot to post about my workout and now it's just completely worthless. Maybe you're always obsessed about how you feel and what you think and what people think of you. Maybe you think you're worthless. I don't know. Maybe you think that you've got no value whatsoever and that whatever you've got to say is completely pointless. Maybe you think that you're broken and damaged. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how successful that was. I don't know how able you are to visualise your own self-perception, whether you've got 12 seconds or 12 hours to do it. But it is an interesting question, isn't it? How would you describe yourself if you only had a word or a couple of words? 
However we answer that question, the ramifications for your behavior and beliefs are massive, aren't they? Let's go through the slideshow again, this time much quicker, asking yourself, how would your friends describe Christians this time? So do you think they'd say they're artistic, creative, sad, useful? What about above average? I don't know if Richard Dawkins would think that. What about decent people? What about disciplined? Or cool? Geeky? No. Joyful? That one hurts, doesn't it? What about arrogant? People think Christians are arrogant. Or confident. Judgmental? I asked some work colleagues. This one came up. What about self-obsessed? Or worthless? Or broken? What did you think? What do you think people would say if they were going to describe Christians? I'm genuinely asking you. Give me some answers. Judgmental? Anyone else? Out of touch. Out of touch, yeah? Friendly. Sorry, what? Friendly. Friendly, okay. That's a positive one. Did your answer for what people would think of Christians and what you thought of yourself, did they match up at all? Well, in 1 Peter, we've been thinking about who we are, okay? Peter tells us who we are. Um, In verses 1 and 2, he says that Christians are elect exiles, chosen, sanctified, sprinkled by God. And then in verses 3 to 5, we saw that God has given us a new birth. There are perks to this new birth. It's a birth into something. Now, it's not like when you're born in a pool of water and you're born into water. You're born into, into something that you get to lay hold of later in life. Peter says we're born into a living hope and into an imperishable inheritance. In our passage today, Peter goes on to describe these scattered Christians from this region. And here's his one word answer for them, okay? They're joyful. That means we get to bring this back one more time. So this is Peter's description of these Christians, okay? Take that away in case it's distracting. (laughs) Joyful. Is that what your friends would have said? Is that what you'd say if you had to describe the church to someone? He says in verse 6 that they rejoice. And then in stronger terms, he says they're they're filled with joy in verse 8. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, he tells them to rejoice despite potential sufferings. And he even says to them that their joy will overflow one day when they see Jesus again. In fact, it's a common assertion in the Bible that God's people are characterized by joy. We're told in Deuteronomy 12 that rather than worshiping Yahweh like all the other nations, Israel was to worship him joyfully. Celebrations, feasts. The Psalms are filled with expressions of personal corporate rejoicing. Psalm 81 begins like this. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Psalm 34 begins like this. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will praise him continually. It will be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. I will magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. And then David says in Psalm 16. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Isaiah, the great prophet, says in chapter 61, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Joy is all over the New Testament as well. Jesus' birth was met with great rejoicing. His triumphal entry to Jerusalem was met with great rejoicing. In John's Gospel, Jesus himself states that we are to remain in him. And he says that he taught us this so that his joy may be in us. And that when he returns, we'll rejoice forever. In Acts, joy accompanies the gift of the Holy Spirit. So whenever you see the Holy Spirit come, you see joy. And that fits with Galatians 5, doesn't it? Where we're told that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that joy is a normative Christian experience. And it should be a mark of true believers who bear fruit. So Peter's saying that these, these believers, these particular believers, are characterized by joy. It isn't all that controversial. It isn't all that controversial. It does beg the question, what is joy? So I did a bit of research. Google told me that joy was a feeling of great pleasure and happiness and a brand of clothing for women. That's joy. Now, if I ask Siri, <laughs> what is joy? Well, Siri told me that joy is a feeling that tells me my life is on track, and it's also a type of computer programming code. So if we put all that all together, does that mean that Christians basically have to be happy all the time, wear a particular brand of women's clothing and become computer programmers? I'm sure some people actually think that of Christians, but I don't think that's what Peter or the whole Bible is getting at when joy is discussed. The IVP New Bible Dictionary is more helpful. It says, joy is a quality, in fact I've, I've got this here actually, joy is a quality and not simply an emotion grounded upon God himself and indeed derived from him which characterizes the Christian's life on earth and also anticipates the joy of being with Christ forever. It's a quality, not simply an emotion, grounded upon God, derived from him, characterizing the Christian's life. So joy is a quality, not merely an emotion. And it's founded upon God. He's our living hope and upon the promises that he's made to us. So that means that by speaking about joy, we're not talking about being happy all the time. We're not talking about perfect lives that never have problems because I'm the wrong person to talk to you about that, if that's the case. We're not talking about putting on a front either. It's something deeper, it's something more real, and something more wonderful and divine than just feeling happy. Because you can feel happy just from eating some Pop-Tarts, can't you? <laughs> the biblical words in the Greek and Hebrew, got this from the New Bible Dictionary as well, imply that whatever joy is, it's intense. It has something to do with excitement. So there's a sort of outward appearance to it sometimes and it has something to do with happiness but it can also coexist with suffering and disappointment and trials and setbacks it can coexist with illnesses and grief and actually more than coexist it can become the defining quality of a person above those things even when those things rage in a person's life joy is a deep and intense sense of happiness, contentment and hope all intermingled, smushed together and paradoxically it can be present even when our lives are in turmoil. And that's Peter's point about these Christians. The first thing he says, you know, they're joyful despite various griefs, despite various trials, and despite the fact that they've never seen Jesus. That's where we're going today in the passage. 
So despite those things, various greeds and having never seen Jesus, these Christians are joyful. They're characterized by joy. So let's get into that. First, they're joyful despite various griefs. Let's have a look at verses 6 and 7 again. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Peter starts by commending them that they would you know, that they rejoice in the identity that God has given them. That's why he says, in these things you rejoice. He's talking about what he's just said in verses 1 to 5. You know, they've got this identity of being newborn into a living hope and an imperishable inheritance. In fact, they greatly rejoice, don't they? They greatly rejoice. It's, it's emphatic. Though now, for a little while, they may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. What does that mean? The first thing you notice is that this isn't very specific language. Well, that's, it's, it says that you may have to suffer, and if you do suffer, it'll be grief in all kinds of trials. It's pretty vague. Now that's partly because Peter's right into a large region here, like Mike explained to us a couple of weeks ago. It's a big area. And it's partly, you know, they're not going through the same stuff. Um, but it's also likely because something to do with the dating of the letter. Let me read this to you. Commentators agree that the suffering Peter's reading, readers were undergoing was not at this point state-sponsored imprisonment or martyrdom. That suggests it's early, though these would come later. Instead, it was the suspicion and censure of their neighbours. Karen Jobs says, because of their Christian faith, they were being marginalised by their society, alienated in their relationships, and threatened with, if not already experiencing, a loss of honour and socio-economic standing, possibly worse. Howard Marshall says, at this stage it seems that state action was rare and that what Christians had to fear was more, more in the nature of social ostracism, unfriendly acts by neighbours, pressure on Christian wives from pagan husbands, masters taken out on Christian slaves and other actions of that kind. It was sufficient in any case to make life uncomfortable. The hostility described throughout the letter is verbal slander and malicious accusations. They accuse you of doing wrong, the ignorant talk of foolish men, insult, those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ, slander, they're all from one Peter. It was precisely the precarious legal status of foreigners that provided the closest analogy to the kind of treatment Christians could expect from the hostile culture in which they live. We can't know what people said to Christians in the marketplace and street day-to-day insults are rarely written down for us. However, there is a famous piece of graffiti surviving from the first century which depicts a donkey on a cross with the, worship, with the words, Alexander worships his God. Alexander, it seems, was a Christian whose faith in a crucified saviour was being ridiculed. Christians were being slandered, excluded and marginalised. In other words, it was much like our experience today. <coughs> Now it's clear that not all of Peter's readers will be grieved from what Peter says. Indeed, he says they may have to suffer grief if necessary. This implies that God is deciding if it's necessary for them to have to suffer grief or not. As John Calvin writes, Peter's purpose was to show that God doesn't just try his people without a reason. No, rather there is a reason. 
for their various griefs. Peter spells out in verse 7, Their griefs have come so that their faith may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. So what does that mean? Well, the context suggests that the praise, glory and honour comes from Christ and is awarded to them for their faith. It has the flavour of, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we see that in the metaphor. Gold, which is always precious, whether refined or not, is purified, is perfected, refined by fire. In the same way, faith, which Peter is saying here, is definitely genuine. I mean, he says that, doesn't he? The proven genuineness of your faith. That's not up for debate. In the same way gold is refined, faith is not being tested, it's being refined or matured by these various trials. I don't know if you can visualise that, so I wanted to read you another example of this. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom writes about the lesson in gospel gratitude that she and her sister Betsy learned while they were standing in line for their weekly medical inspection at a Nazi concentration camp. I'd read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happening had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. Naked, we had to maintain our erect, hands at side position as we filed slowly past a phalanx of grinning guards. But it was one of those mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I hadn't known, I hadn't thought. The paintings, the cars, crucifixes showed that, that at least a scrap of cloth, but this I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at that time, itself on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. There had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned towards Betsy, ahead of me in the line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corrie, and I never thanked him. Now I think that's amazing that they suffer humiliation, dehumanising grief at the hands of those monstrous men, and yet they grow in faith. It's actually what Betsy says at the end that gets me every time. Oh, I never thanked him. You can almost hear the joyful gratitude in what she says as the grief that she is undergoing vividly paints the picture for her of some of Christ's sufferings for us. Their faith in that moment was refined, it was strengthened and matured by that horrible experience that Jesus himself allowed them to undergo. So that's how Peter can say of these Christians, they're joyful despite various griefs. Their griefs don't knock their faith, they don't have to prove their faith. These griefs refine their faith, strengthen it, give it depth. But that's not all that he says about them. He says they're joyful despite having never seen Jesus. They greatly rejoice in their new birth into a living hope and this imperishable inheritance, even though they've never seen him. And even though they don't see him now. He puts it another way in verse 8. He says, despite having never seen Jesus, despite not seeing him now, they love him. They believe in him. They're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And that fits with Jesus' own description, sorry, declarations to Thomas that blessed are those who've, who have not seen and yet have believed. Now in verse 9, 
the NIV makes it look like Peter is saying they'll be joyful because they're receiving salvation. But the true sense here is that in loving and believing Jesus, they are receiving the end result of their faith, salvation. The inexpressible and glorious joy is just a mark of someone who truly loves and believes in him. It's something that a true believer is filled with by trusting and delighting in with him. Now all that said, they haven't seen Christ before. They're living by faith. The temptation could certainly grow to doubt Jesus because of this. So Peter moves to encourage them in verses 10 to 12. He says, even though you've never seen Jesus and you don't see him now, you've seen way more than the prophets and the angels ever did. Now angels and prophets are a big deal, okay? And you know more than them. You're in a more blessed position this side of the cross than Isaiah was. Even though Isaiah is the Magdaddy, you know, the Holy Spirit directed him to predict Christ's sufferings. I mean, he wrote all the big hits. The suffering servant, that was him. We know more than he did. We see more than Isaiah saw. Angels longed to look into the things that have been revealed to you. In fact, Peter says, these scriptures were actually written for you. For them, and we infer, written for us. Peter's on the encouragement offensive here to show that their joy is not without merit. You've not seen Jesus with your eyes, but you've seen more than Isaiah. You've not seen Jesus before. You've seen more than the other prophets. You've seen more than the angels did. This grace that they intently searched and tried to fathom, it's come to you in its fullness. Peter's saying they're right to rejoice despite having never seen Jesus. They're right to believe in him and they're right to love him. He encourages them. He says, your faith is genuine. You're the real deal. You're joyful in a hard word. You're filled, even though you've, it's filled with grief and you've got reasons to doubt, you're joyful. He encourages them. So that's them. Brilliant. What about us? Let me ask you the question that you're probably dreading. Are you joyful? Are you characterised by joy? I don't mean Carlton Banks from the Fresh Prince dancing around. Even though I'd love to dance like that. Are you joyful? Now Mike said last week when he came to preach that a lot of us were miserable. There were a lot of miserable faces about. If I'm honest, I was one of them. Why are we not joyful? It's not as if we don't want to be, is it? Our whole society is geared around the mantra of pursue pleasure at any, any cost, any and all costs. You walk around our homes, look at what we spend our money on, think about what we daydream about, as Mike said last week. We're after joy, aren't we? That's what we're after all the time. A little bit of heaven here on earth. I spent Tuesday night this week in A&E. It was a wild night. Mike was with me. Everyone you could imagine was there, okay? Police, drunks, oddballs, druggies, people with hope, people with none, men, women, various nationalities, students, pensioners, the rich, the poor, moral people, immoral people. There were fights, there were submachine guns, there were tasers, I'm not joking. <laughs> 
It was Manchester boiled down into one room. <laughs> Everyone seemed lost. Everyone seemed to be missing something. Everyone was after joy. We're all after joy, all of us. This whole city is on the hunt for joy 24-7. We just don't know where to find it. And the tragic thing is, is that we've, we've got it. And we're not confident enough to say, hey, we've got joy. Come and have some. And I don't mean that as a knock. That's at me as well. It's tragic. We like confidence. This whole city doesn't even know where to find joy. We don't even know where to find it. We look in all the wrong places, don't we? Let's look at a few of the reasons why we, why we like joy from this passage. Firstly, stuff. Or you could put wealth as well. This implied in verse 7. Peter says that faith is more valuable than gold. I don't think a lot of us believe that. I think we believe that stuff or wealth will bring us joy and happiness. That's why we pursue it so relentlessly. That's why we have so much stuff. And that's why we struggle to give it away. There must be one reason why the church's finances have dropped off a bit. But our DVD collections haven't. That is spoken directly at me. It's not a dig at anyone. But it might hit you. What is it for you? And despite the fact that we live like that, are we really happy? Are we joyful? Did Iron Man 3 thrill my heart? <laughs> be honest with you, it didn't. It's a good film. It didn't make me joyful. Now, my son is obsessed with cars, trains, lorries, diggers, and planes. If you've met him, he probably didn't talk to you or look at you. He probably just held up a vehicle in your face and told you what it was. Now, he always wants more. We were around at Mike's house last week. Josh got all the cars out. And look. He's not that joyful. He's actually sat on a pile of cars. Okay, there's too many cars for Josh to play with. What more could he want? He's not happy. I think that's a picture of our lives. We're not happy when we live this way, are we? If we're honest with ourselves. Secondly, we try and pursue joy by seeking an easy life. Now this is hinted at in verses 6 and 7. Because Peter commends these Christians because they're joyful despite suffering griefs. Can the same be said of us? I think if we suffer a grief, we're like, flipping heck, God. What are you doing? This is, not, this is not the victorious life that I was promised. It's supposed to be easy. I don't think it can always be said for us. Now... I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that for some of us, actually, this can be said. I know that there are some people in Grace Church who have really suffered, some people who are suffering now, and yet in your lives, I see joy in Christ. And I want to encourage you, because you're probably sat there thinking, I'm rubbish, and I'm sure you know who you are. You're probably sat there thinking, I'm rubbish, but in your lives, I've seen joy. Some of you have suffered anxiety, some of you have suffered depression, some of you have suffered loss, some of you have suffered ridicule and rejection, some of you have suffered heartbreak, and yet at times you rejoice in Christ. Now, that's not an exhaustive list, but I just want to say to some of you, you are doing so, so well. You're the real deal, and one day your joy will be complete. You'll see him face to face, and everything that you've suffered will be worth it. And I want to say you're doing great, hang in there. I want to encourage you. Strive for more of that joy. We'll come on to that shortly. 
But there are some of us, as I hinted before, who I think, we think if we get an easy life, that's what's going to make us happy. So we shy away from serving in church, shy away from work. We avidly seek me time, operating on the understanding that every single evening must be spent zoning out. Otherwise, I can't cope with life. I've got to watch the next episode of Sherlock. That's all I can do. When I put cheese strings into my mouth. It's like the 20th century version of reclining with grapes, isn't it? It's tragic. Well, how's that working out for you guys? You don't seem that happy or joyful to me, I'll be honest with you. I don't think you realise that you're missing out. Life just is hard. You can't stop that. We're in a fallen world and we are going to be tired. And we've got to get beyond that. We have to grow, and growth is good for us. So maybe some of us need to reevaluate how much recovery time we take and compare it to how much time we serve, how much time we spend with other believers, how much our faith has grown over the last 12 months. Spending time with each other and sacrificially serving is a sacrifice. But it's more joyful than sat at home every night watching TV. The third reason that we like joy is, is that we like faith. Now I'm astonished every time I read the Gospels how often Jesus commands not just to repent, you know, sort out your thinking, but also believe. And he doesn't just say that as if it's something that's going to magically happen. He says it as if it's something they need to go and do. Have faith, believe. It's an active command. I'm not sure that we do believe half the time, actually. We allow ourselves to live under this cloud of guilt. We know that Christ has declared us clean, but we so infrequently fight to believe it. When are you going to believe him? He's washed you. When are you going to live in that? Believe it. Because we live under this cloud of guilt, we don't pray, we don't read scripture as much. We start thinking other things are more important. In fact, if we're not running from the guilt, we're trying to deal with it ourselves, but we're not very good at it. We had a picture before of my son, but I took it out because Mike said, you know, don't use too many illustrations about yourself. But I'm going to go with it, okay? I'm sorry. We're not very good at this. We're not very good at doing our father's work. Now, one of my jobs at home is to empty the dishwasher. That's my job. Sometimes Josh likes to come along and help with that job and empty the dishwasher. He's not that great at it, to be honest. Because sometimes I find all the spoons, and a lot of them are dirty because the dishwasher's not been on yet. They've been put away. I really appreciate his efforts, but it's not his calling right now. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And maybe some boys are thinking, yeah, maybe it's not my calling as well. (laughs) Different thing. He's not very good at doing his father's job. We are not very good at doing God's job. We can't earn our way to, to please him. Stop doing it and just believe that he's done it, okay? It may be that we like faith that he's gracious and loves us, so we try and prove ourselves. It may be that we like faith that he's great and in control. So we worry and try and take control ourselves. We may like faith that he's glorious, so we fear others and crave their approval over his. It may be that we like faith that he's good, so we look elsewhere for fulfillment and meaning. We probably are somewhere in each of those. If any of those phrases touch home, let me ask you again, how is that working out for you? Are you joyful? You need to know that belief is not just going to happen. If you sort of think, I'm going to put my belief over here, you know, and let it happen. It's like a plant, isn't it? You've got to give it water and sunlight. You've got to feed it. Well, your faith, you've got to feed it. You have to read the scriptures. You have to pray. And like Mary, Jesus' mother, you have to take the things God says to heart. 
That's an active element to that. It doesn't just wash over you and somehow it's going to stick. It's not like you know, you're stood there and we're throwing truth at you and hoping that one of them's going to stick to you. Like post-it notes. And it's never going to happen. You have to grab hold of them, internalize them, choose to trust them. Are you just drifting along? Are you joyful living like that? I don't think you are. Some of you, on the other side of things, I think have grown in faith loads. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This isn't for all of us. Some of us have grown in faith, and, that's, and that, you've been such an encouragement to me. Keep pressing into that. Take the encouragement from the scripture where it's there. Now, the fourth reason, there's only two more. The fourth reason we may like joy is that we don't love the Lord. It says that in verse 8, doesn't he? It says that you love the Lord. Now, I don't know about us. It's not just enough for us to know stuff about him. It's not enough to keep him at arm's length. And I know it's very British for us to not want to use a word like love about God. And I get it. We don't want to give the impression that Jesus is our boyfriend. But Peter says these guys love him. So we're going to have to, we're going to, have to deal with these guys. We're going to have to get over ourselves. I think the main reason we don't love Christ is not actually because we're British and we've got this stiff upper lip. I think it's because we don't realise how much we need him. How lost we are without him. How in need of forgiveness we are. We basically think we're good people, like I said of myself before. But we're we're not joyful because deep down we know it's not true. Now Jesus himself said of some proud Pharisees that he came for the sick. Well people don't need a physician. What about you? Do you need a physician? Do you need him? Because if you need him, he's come for you. And if you know that he's come for you, then you love him. We've got to let go of our pride and look at our hearts, guys. If they are cold towards Christ, then some major surgery is needed and you need the physician. Don't put it off any longer. And again, some of you are really pressing into this and your love for Christ is so evident and so encouraging to me. Be encouraged to keep pressing on. Help the rest of us to live like that. And lastly, we can lack joy because we've got a messed up view of our identity. Now remember which picture you thought best described yourself. And maybe you had a different one, I don't know. Well, here is how Peter says that we should picture ourselves. What is it? Come on. We're newborns. That is my daughter literally three seconds after she's born. That's why she looks a bit weird. We are newborns. We're in God's family. The Father has chosen us. Picked us out. Now that needs to make you feel special. Because you are special to him. The Son spilled out his precious blood to bring us into this family. That should make us feel like a million dollars as well as unworthy wretches. Now let let me tell you, this image has got to kill our pride. Because what can a baby do? As I said, that photo was taken moments after Anwin was born. She couldn't even open her eyes. That's how helpless we are. But, as I said, this identity Peter describes also needs to fill us with joy. Because even though Annie couldn't do anything, my heart, as her father holding her that first minute, swelled with love. I just loved her. There's nothing that she did, really, that made me love her. It's not like I've been going through my life thinking what I really need is someone to not be able to open their eyes and then I'll love them. (laughs) I just loved her. She's my child. 
Now likewise, this image tells you, you're in the family. You have a heavenly father who loves you, no matter how little you bring to the table. And let me tell you, what you bring to the table is 0%. When we think of ourselves wrongly, we don't perceive all the benefits that God has granted us, or indeed see what he truly thinks of us. We listen to the lies of the enemy instead. No wonder we lack joy. So remember who God the Father has declared you to be through the resurrection of his Son. Remember that the Holy Spirit is maturing us through grief. It's an expression of God's love for us, perfecting our faith. If you want to pursue joy, then you need to remember God's grace. Peter actually puts it in stronger terms in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ has revealed it is coming. If you want to pursue joy, if you want to be joyful, you need to actively set your hope. That's something you need to do on the grace that would be brought to us when Jesus Christ has revealed it is coming. So if there's a sin that's wearying you, bogging you down, in that moment, set your hope on the grace that has been promised to you. If you're not joyful, set your hope on the, the, the promise that has been made to Christians. If you don't love Christ, set your hope on what he's offered you and who he tells you that you really are. To set your hope on the gospel, on on God's grace, means to remember the gospel. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember what you're looking forward to. It isn't something that just happens. It's a command. Something that we've got to do if we want to be joyful. If we want to be free from sin, this is what we have to do. Basically, look at him. Choose to set our hope on God's grace. And it is a fight to do this. If you don't believe that, then you're going to fail. It has to be our number one priority. This is what Christian community is for. To gospel each other. To massage the gospel truth into the wounds that we see whenever we spot unbelief or a lack of love or idolatry or laziness in someone. An identity built on lies. If you see that in someone, you need to speak the gospel into their hearts. That's what community groups are for. You have to open yourself up to receive that if you want to be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Set your hope on the Father who chose you. Set your hope on the Spirit who grows and matures you. Set your hope on the Son who has washed you with his precious blood. Set your hope on an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. Regardless of what you do, it will never fade. Set your hope on seeing him, our living hope, in his resurrected glory when he returns. And if you do that, then as Peter says in 4.13, one day your joy will indeed overflow. Let's pray. Father, we want to be joyful. We want our joy to overflow. We want it to be the characteristic that defines us. And there are probably areas where it is, and we thank you for that. And there are areas where it's not. So God, we we pray, please help us to set our hope on you. And help us not to be lazy in that. Help us to be desperate to receive the care of the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to heal us and save us and wash us. Work through our community. Work through 
whatever you can, Lord. And change us, we pray, for the glory of your Son. Amen.